Hi, this is Calvin. I'm calling from Colorado. Uh, I've been to county jail 13 times. I was also a juvenile offender. Uh, I guess the, the best way I could sum it up was uh, I had to go to Scared Street when I was a juvenile offender. And I remember the warden of the prison we visited said when he first started at that prison, he used to call it the zoo. But then he realized that no zoo in the world would treat animals like that. It's a horrible, horrible experience, and I don't wish it on anybody. The vast majority of people who go to jail are not on death row. So why are so many people dying in custody? Suicide has historically been the single leading cause of death in jails and prisons, but overdoses are quickly catching up, according to Department of Justice data. According to the latest numbers from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 4,200 people died in state and federal prisons in 2019. A record 1,200 more died in local jails. After the break, we'll get into why going to jail is sometimes so deadly. We'll also take a closer look at what mental health and substance abuse resources are offered to those that need them. This episode is part of 1A's Remaking America project. The series looks at how democracy is and is not working for everyone. For the series, we're partnering with six public radio stations, including WFPL in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To be a part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Louisville is Roberto Roldan. He's the politics and government reporter for WFPL. He's been covering the string of jail deaths in Louisville for the past year. Roberto, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Also with us is Jerry Collins. He's the jail director of Louisville Metro Department of Corrections. He started in April of this year. Jerry, glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. I'm glad you guys have me on. Roberto, 10 people have died in Louisville's jail in less than a year. Can you tell us what's happened? Um, yeah, so uh, all of this has happened since last November. Um, we know that at least four people who were incarcerated there uh, died by suicide. At least two others were suspected drug overdoses. Um, we also had a mass overdose incident last September where five women incarcerated at the jail uh, were taken to the hospital you know, fortunately, they all survived, but 10 deaths in less than a year is abnormal for Louisville. Um, so between 2009 and 2019, uh, the jail averaged a little under three deaths per year, and it's also abnormal regionally. So the Louisville jail has had more deaths since November than larger nearby metro areas like Nashville and Indianapolis. 
Um, and, and I think as you alluded to earlier amid this crisis, uh, jail director Dwayne Clark retired in April uh, amid calls for, for his resignation. Roberto, what do we know and not know about these deaths? Um, so, I, I mean, I would say that there's still uh, quite a lot we don't know. Um, there are some where, you know, we suspect uh, that it's drug overdose based on sort of the circumstances um, surrounding the, the person who died. Um, but in some cases, there is uh, an ongoing investigation that officials say is not done, so we can't see the investigative documents. And then in other cases, uh, you know, officials are uh, sort of limited in what they can say because they're they're kind of wrapped up in, in litigation. Um, but I can I give you sort of two examples um, that we do know. There was one case where a woman named Stephanie Dunbar died by suicide. Um, and internal investigators found that she was having uh, a mental health crisis and officers uh, put her in a, a very tiny attorney booth uh, for potentially up to 18 hours uh, and rarely, really checked up on her, according to internal investigators. Um, some documents that my colleague, Jared Bennett, at the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, uh, he was able to get some documents through an open records request. Uh, which suggested that when when one man died by suicide in February, there was no mental health staff on the premises. Jerry, as Roberto said, you took on the jail director job in April after the previous director retired amid calls for his firing. Two more people have died uh, under your watch. What can you tell us about those deaths? Well, I can't go into detail um, on those. Um, One's potential overdose, um, and we have you know, charged folks with that um, that came in. The other one is um, potential suicide, which is um, currently under investigation. Um, There was a lot of challenges coming in. We understood that. And I think one of the conversations that needs to be had is really a paradigm shift on on corrections in the United States and how we're dealing with it. Some of the things you mentioned with with mental health and and, um, overdoses and the um, um, synthetic opioids, um, fentanyl, coexisting, um, and, and jails wasn't designed to treat these problems. I mean, the jails turned into the largest uh, mental health facilities in the region, the largest um, detox facilities in the region, and we really, you know, had to take a paradigm shift on how, how we're looking at um, dealing with that, you know, where, where, where we are with our facilities. Um, but we really have to start looking forward, and that's as a community, um, no matter where you're at in the country, because, you know, generally the jail is, you know, a microcosm of what's going on in, in, in the community. And, you know, Louisville has a large increase in overdoses, a large increase in suicide, um, um, really post-pandemic, um, really a, a, a regional hub of, of where drugs are coming through, where... Um, the opioids are coming through. We had a humongous increase in, in fentanyl in the community, and it takes a very small amount of that um, to come in. And often, you know, these these conditions are, you know, co-occurring. So, you know, we're, we're meeting folks at their worst. You know, they're detoxing. In addition, um, often they're treating their mental illness with, with um, these illicit, dangerous, poisonous drugs. And, you know, it takes a small amount to get in. So really we... You know, we, we're having to meet this challenge on, on a lot of fronts and um, really fast. Jerry, you have been asking for a new $300 million jail as we are talking about resources in this paradigm shift. But not everyone in Louisville agrees with you. I wanted to play a clip of Kunjo Junguna, a policy analyst with the ACLU of Kentucky. We need to be talking about all the other alternatives to incarceration before we throw money into a, a building. Because even if it's nice, 
it's still a jail and you can't get around that. And it's still not a place that someone who has mental health issues and substance use disorder issues needs to be at. Jerry, what's your response to that? Do you think this paradigm shift also needs to include how we're thinking about incarcerating people in the first place? Absolutely. And, and, and me and Kungu have had this conversation um, that it, it's absolutely we need to have folks in jail that are dangerous. We don't need to have folks in jail that are mad at we're mad at. However, my challenge is different. My challenge is I'm working where we're at right now. The facility, um, a new facility um, and any new facility needs to be designed with the, the problems that corrections are facing with the mental health and the um, you know, substance abuse and, and, and the programs. Um, when you're talking about an overall systemic change of the criminal justice system, um, that is, you know, needs to happen. However, jails are working where they're at. And that's what I have to think about. And, you know, I've had this conversation. One of the things, and uh, Roberto, you know, he, he knows this, is I've invited um, the ACLU and I've invited the advocacy groups in to, to see our challenges, and they know our challenges. Um, however, you know, that conversation needs to happen now because they're, the price tag is just going to get more on that. And I think um, until we have a, you know, national systemic change, jails and prisons are going to operate where they're at. And that's my challenge is I, I believe in what he said, that we do need to to have alternatives to, to jail. Um, but, you know, that is a bigger systemic change. Um, I'm trying to do a, a, a lower systemic change on how we're, we're dealing with what we got. But, you know, that, that national conversation is, is much bigger and broader and, and takes time. And um, time is not on my side right now. Roberto, I know you've reported on alternate solutions people in Louisville have been proposing. I wanted to ask you what you're hearing from the community. What are their concerns? What are they asking for now? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, when when we first uh, when this spate of, of in custody deaths first started happening last November, um, it sort of started with three folks uh, who were incarcerated there that died uh, in less than a week. So I think that was a big um shock, honestly, to the community here. Um, and, and I think it got everybody's attention. So since then, um, there's been an ongoing effort by a coalition of community groups uh, led by the ACLU of Kentucky, uh, but it includes you know criminal justice reform advocates, local bail funds, um, other groups like that. And I, I mean, the coalition, first and foremost, has really been pushing for de-incarceration, what, what you talked about earlier, with ensuring that the people who are arrested for nonviolent, low-level offenses aren't just sitting in a jail while they await trial. Um, so the coalition has worked with with prosecutors and judges to advocate for sort of limiting the use of cash bail uh, in a pretty severe way. And, and they've held uh, what's called amnesty dockets for people with outstanding bench warrants. Um, so folks can go and get their restitution paid or reschedule a court appearance um, without the fear of being locked up. But I think as you alluded to earlier, um, you know, folks uh, in, in the stakeholders coalition um, – I think are pretty animately opposed to the idea um, that Louisville should should be spending a pretty hefty sum on a new jail versus you know maybe putting that money into the community into uh, you know as as Jerry Collins said detox facilities into mental health facilities um, rather than uh, what they see as a, a bigger cage. That was Roberto Roldan. He's the politics and government reporter for WFPL in Louisville, Kentucky. I want to thank Jerry Collins as well, the jail director of Louisville Metro Department of Corrections. Thanks to both of you for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Joining us now from Chicago is Nika Jones-Tapia. She's Managing Director of Justice Initiatives at Chicago Beyond and also a former Cook County Jail Warden. Nika, glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. And with us from Austin, Texas, is Doug Smith. He was previously incarcerated for several years. Now he's managing partner at D-Degree Coaching and Training. He provides leadership development for people who have mental illness, a substance abuse disorder, or have been formerly incarcerated. Doug, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's great to talk to you. Joining us now is Beth, um, as well as Beth Schwartz-Apfel. She's a staff writer for the Marshall Project, which covers the U.S. criminal justice system. Beth, thanks for being with us, too. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Beth, we just heard about the jail crisis in Louisville and the community's response. Is what's happened in Kentucky reflective of what's happening across the nation, or would you say what we just heard was more of an outlier? Oh, no, that sounds very much like what we're hearing from jails all over the country. Um, Jails are just increasingly deadly places, um, you know, year after year in general. And they're particularly deadly with regards to suicide and overdose. I mean, in some ways, this is reflecting uh, trends that we see in the country at large. You know, we've been having a national conversation for years now about these deaths of despair, you know, overdose and suicide rates um, in in the country in general um, are higher than they've ever been. But when we look in the sort of pressure cooker of jail where people are in their lowest moments, um, you're seeing rates of things like suicide and overdose um, higher than they've ever been uh, in, in, these, in these desperate situations. Ninka, you were warden of Cook County Department of Corrections in Chicago, which is one of the largest in the country and is responsible for an average 9,000 inmates each day. That's according to the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Can you tell us what happens when someone gets booked into jail? I can tell you that in general, um, there is an immense amount of trauma that a person experiences from the moment they're booked in jail. They're stripped of their uh, identity. They're reduced to a number, uh, removing almost every opportunity they have to make a decision for themselves, disconnecting them from the people they love and from the aspects of life that Um, I think, make them want to act in better ways and ingraining in them through policies, practices, training and language that they can't be trusted. Um, And the fact that locking human beings in cages is, is torture. Being locked in a cage is torture. These things are universal to every jail and prison across the country. And Beth, we know that jails are locally run and largely held accountable on a local level. Uh, Where are we seeing other jails in the U.S. that are also seeing, as you're saying, there's just a broad trend, but where are we also seeing specific areas where we're seeing an uptick in deaths? Yeah, so there's a couple of high-profile places where we're seeing an uptick in deaths. I've been keeping a particularly close eye on uh, Rikers Island, which is, as listeners probably know, the notorious jail in New York City. Um, Just last week, the 13th person um, uh, to die there this year passed away by suicide. So that makes 2022 on track to surpass the already record number of deaths that Rikers had in 2021, which was 16. Um, Seattle has had a spike in deaths um, lately. So we're seeing sort of these outlier um, high profile cities um, that in fact are not reflective of the data. What the data show is actually that smaller and more rural jails have the highest mortality rates 
The numbers are smaller because there's fewer people, but as far as the rate per population, we see places that have lower staffing, lower resources, lower oversight, um, fewer watchdog organizations, um, tend to have higher rates of death in their jails. Um, so, you know, there's a little of everything happening there. We, you know, we don't have one criminal justice system. We have thousands of criminal justice systems across all of our nation's states, counties, cities. Um, but I think what we're seeing is uh, the sort of knock-on effect of staffing problems created during COVID, health problems created during COVID, not just mortality from COVID, but mortality from all the healthcare people weren't getting because of COVID, all the resources that weren't available because of COVID. That's, you know, things like visitation that keep people hopeful and looking towards the future. That's things like GED classes, religious services, um, AA, NA, um, all the kind of uh, treatments and supports that keep people going were suspended during COVID. So, you know, we're going to definitely, when the numbers come out, see excess deaths from COVID directly, but we're also going to see excess deaths um, from all these sort of ripple effects from COVID that aren't COVID, but are the pandemic in a larger sense. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. Let's get back to our conversation with this message from Jennifer in Austin, Texas. I just wanted to share what the experience was like, you know, being inside of a Texas jail, especially regarding my mental health. Uh, What did observation look like for me when I was in jail? Uh, It looked like staff coming to check on me whenever they felt like it. Um, essentially, I survived uh, suicidal thoughts and mental health breakdowns in jail on my own. Uh, between me and God, there was no intervention from the jail. And upon release, I struggled to uh, reacclimate to society, which added another level of stress. But it was a struggle. Thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. Beth, I wanted to talk about the number of intoxication and overdose deaths in jails. We know that it's nearly it was nearly five times higher in 2019 than in 2000, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Why are we seeing overdoses in jails becoming more common? Uh, yeah, I, that's a really important point and one that um, there are so many things to say about overdose deaths in jail, primar- primarily that they're entirely preventable or almost entirely preventable. Um, but let's just start with the, the drivers behind them. So, uh, you know, we're seeing a, a, a skyrocketing increase in overdose deaths in the country in general. So in a, in a way, you know, jails are a microcosm of the larger country where uh, they're just more drugs and more deadly drugs than there ever were before. Fentanyl, as we know, has infiltrated much of the drug supply and very little fentanyl is required to cause somebody to overdose and die. Um, And the same is true in jails. The other thing that's uniquely deadly in jail, there's a couple of factors. The first is that the harder it is to get drugs, the more likely they are to be dangerous or extremely potent. So um, that's true in, in the world at large, and it's especially true in jails, because when drugs are hard to come by, they become more potent, they become um, smaller and harder to identify. That's people's way of getting them past the guards, um, all the interdiction efforts. And so when people get their hands on drugs, they're more likely to be more concentrated, and people are more likely to be desperate. 
And so they're less likely to think to themselves, I wonder where this came from. I wonder what's in here. They don't have fentanyl test strips, for instance, like people on the outside may have access to through harm reduction programs. And if they get their hands on drugs, it's, it's much more rare and they're just more likely to just use it no matter what it is. Once they do use it, if there's an overdose when you're in jail, um, you're less likely to get, be able to get help, for instance. You can't call 911. You can call uh, the local correction officer who may or may not uh, ha be understaffed or overworked and able to help you, may or may not have Narcan on them. But you may not want to do that because calling them and saying, I fear I'm overdosing is also like calling them and admitting that you just use drugs. And there are all kinds of consequences for that. So something where on the outside, people might be willing to call 911 and get Narcan and get help. On the inside, they may not be willing to. Um, I also just want to say that... Um, that there are medications that prevent people from craving opioids and that prevent people from overdosing. The most common one is Suboxone. And more and more prisons and jails, I know the Cook County Jail is one, are making Suboxone available by prescription. It's more and more common um, in the free world and it's, and it's more and more common in prisons and jails. And exactly the kind of desperate situation that your other guest was describing, people coming in in withdrawal, desperate. If you've ever spoken to anyone in withdrawal, you know they will do anything to feel better. Being in withdrawal is hell on earth, according to, you know, folks who have been through it. And um, that's when people make really, really dangerous choices. But Suboxone prevents people from going through withdrawal. And traditionally, jails have been very reluctant to provide it. There's actually a thriving black market for Suboxone because people are so desperate to feel well. And instead of providing Suboxone, many jails react by punishing people for getting their hands on black market Suboxone. And that's exactly the thing that addiction experts and doctors say will prevent them from overdosing. So I also think part of the problem is this kind of paradigm shift that Dr. Tapia was talking about, where um, jail administrators need to recognize the, the medical consensus that Suboxone is actually a very effective treatment um, to, to treat with, uh, withdrawal and to prevent overdose. Doug, we spoke with a colleague of yours, Maggie Luna. She was incarcerated for several years. She's now in recovery from an opioid addiction. And here's her describing going through detox in jail. After the first couple of days and you can't sleep, you have muscle spasms in your arms and in your legs. And then your anxiety gets extremely high. Oh, it, was, it was intense. And so you can have seizures and barely able to care for yourself. And then you're put in a, in a tank with other women. You know, they're all going through their own things. So you're just basically left to feel like you're dying on your own. Doug, how should people with substance abuse disorders be treated as soon as they enter a jail? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost is to do absolutely everything you can as a system to prevent people from going in. It is a net loss once that person is in handcuffs and booked in. There's just limited access to medical. Most of the jails in the United States are rural areas, so there's less access to psychiatric and medical professionals. You might wait days in some cases under staffing. This environment itself is destabilizing, even in well-run, uh, fully staffed jails. And most importantly, you miss out on the most important thing, and that's a human-to-human -human conversation with someone where you can find a route to recovery for yourself. And 
once you go through the system, you're in the system. You're going to go through either pretrial or community supervision. You'll get further incarceration or, or reentry with a criminal record. And as I said, it's a net loss. You have to do everything as a community to prevent that. And that's a full public health approach. It's sobering centers to help people to detox effectively or or uh, come down off of drugs. Crisis stabilization, most importantly, is getting someone in front of a peer, someone with that lived experience. And that's what I do is I develop peers to uh, to transform our systems of mental health in the United States. So but in jail, yes, absolutely access to medical, access to suboxone. But uh, in a lot of rural counties, we're, we're uh, years and years away from that. Fortunately, I do see a lot of counties, and I'm fortunate to work with counties that are stepping up and, and as uh, community leaders to create a holistic response. And what that requires is bringing everyone together. The jail is just one part of the system. You have to bring in law enforcement, the mental health providers, the judges. Everyone has to be part of that discussion. Absent that, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. I want to go back to the Suboxone uh, part of the conversation that we've been talking about. Nika, I know that Cook County Jail had a – it's called a medication-assisted treatment or MAT program, which does include medications like Suboxone or Methadone to curb withdrawal. Why are these programs not widespread in jails? What's the what's the difficulty in implementing them? Well, <clears throat> Cook County had the benefit of having an on-site medical and mental health provider. A lot of jails and prisons, unfortunately, do not have the medical and mental health services capacity to um, to effectively deal with and support people who are exposed to substance use and um, mental health needs. And so Doug's point about making sure that we do all we can to decarcerate and not um, allow people to enter into the system is a critical one. And when I spoke earlier about um, things having gotten worse since the pandemic, you know, the pandemic showed us that numbers were dropping in jails and prisons. There was um, a significant decrease in the number of people incarcerated since uh, since 2020. We've seen those numbers rise again, and we've also seen staffing levels decline. And so that means people who are incarcerated are isolated more. And so there are a host of, of conditions that exist within jails and prisons that don't allow for these types of services. And so the jail administrators have to do more to um, push judges and other parts of the legal system to make sure people can get out and back in community or don't come in. And then we have to work with community so that the services that are needed needed can be rendered. We've been hearing from listeners on this, and we got this message from Jack in Indianapolis. I spent three weeks in Marion County Jail in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was told that I would be able to take my medications in with me and receive them from the doctors there. I took all my all 12 medications in with me. I was not given any of my prescriptions the duration of the stay. The only prescription that I was given was my sleeping medication, and they gave that to me at 10 in the morning every day statistically to mess with me. I do not believe in the mental health uh, care in prisons, and I believe it needs to be changed. Thanks for sharing that, Jack. Nika, I just wanted to end by asking you about the system itself. 
What I can tell you is that there is an immense amount of trauma that is experienced by people incarcerated as well as staff and families um, from this mother's uh, note to, to your, your station as a result of the American Correctional Institution. And it's really because it's founded on this principle of punishment. Every aspect of it was created to actually be dehumanizing and it remains so today across um, most correctional facilities. We know that 98% of men and 99% of women who are incarcerated report being exposed to at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. And that experience of trauma continues throughout their their period of incarceration. You know, 35% of men and about 24% of women um, from one study had reported being physically victimized in the six months um, while in a correctional facility. And so what we really need to do is to think critically about how we seek justice and how we can help heal communities impacted by incarceration. And there's an opportunity that we have now to acknowledge the harms that exist in these systems. And that's what Chicago Beyond is working towards with our vision for holistic safety. Well, thanks to you, Nika Jones-Tipia in Chicago for joining us. I want to thank Beth Schwartzopfel as well, a staff writer for The Marshall Project, and Doug Smith from Austin, Texas. Thanks to you all. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler with help from Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White. This is 1A.